Thank you. My goodness, thank you for the kind welcome. That is, that is really a treat. Well, good to be back and look out and see a few familiar faces from the first session. This is part two, and next session following up from this, we're going to talk about, as you just heard, the problem of evil, which is really what we all want to talk about on Father's Day, right? <laughs> what better day to talk about this, because it really does matter. Well, I enjoy going and working at local coffee shops, meeting people, having conversations. And I was in a coffee shop not long ago, and I kind of sat down. I couched. There was a little bit like a coffee table in the middle, but lower. And then a lady sat down on the couch right across from me, holds up this bright yellow book. And the title was, God is Not Great. Have you heard of this New York Times bestselling book by the late Christopher Hitchens? The subtitle is, How Religion Poisons Everything. That's the subtitle. Well, I don't know about you, but I just can't be sitting this close to somebody reading such a provocative book without at least trying to engage this person in conversation. It's way too much fun. (laughs) Clearly, this person has opinions and probably wants to have a conversation. So I leaned I said, gosh, that looks like an interesting book. What's that about? Well, have you ever asked somebody a question? And then 15 minutes later, they're still speaking, and you're thinking, why did I open my stupid mouth? <laughs> well, this lady, she kind of beams. She goes, oh, yeah, this book, it's, it's really great. It's so meaningful. And, of course, I'm like, well, what's it about? Tell me about it. And she says, well, it really shows that science has disproven God, that this Christian story is just a myth, and that really religion has been nothing but the bane of human existence and causes war and bloodshed and death since its beginning. I'm like, gosh, that's pretty provocative. Well, what does the book say about Jesus? She goes, oh, this is the most interesting part. And then she pauses and says to me, think of the nicest person you know. Well, my late grandma's image comes to mind. Seriously, I think the kindest person who's ever lived. And she said, you have that person in mind? I said, yes. She said, Jesus was just like that person. Wasn't the son of God. Wasn't born of a virgin. Didn't resurrect the third day. He was just a really nice guy. And I sat there. I could only think of one question to ask. I said, if Jesus was just a nice guy, then why did they crucify him? I mean, even the Romans wouldn't crucify Mr. Rogers, right? (laughs) Can you imagine the Romans going, gosh, this guy Jesus, he picks up sheep, he tells like bedtime stories, and he talks to kids. He's making us all feel guilty. Let's publicly humiliate and shame and murder him and make an example about niceness in the Roman Empire. I mean, honestly, there are some good legitimate objections to the Christian faith. You and I need to be ready to answer. That's not one of them. Jesus was not crucified for being a nice guy. Interestingly, he was ultimately crucified not for what he did, but for who he claimed to be. Jesus was crucified because he essentially claimed to be the Messiah, God in human flesh. If you're here in the first session, we talked about how there's this mind behind the universe that the natural wood kind of points towards this beginner and fine-tuner and this author of life. Jesus claimed to be that God in human flesh and that our eternal destinies rest upon what we believe 
about him. And what did he say? He said, a wicked adulterous generation asks for a sign. But what will be given it is the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. The ultimate sign Jesus gave for his identity is namely his resurrection from the dead. This morning, we're going to look and ask, is there good reason to believe Jesus actually died, was buried, rose on the third day, and appeared to people? Now, a few of you have asked me, which I enjoy and shared stories between sessions. You're familiar with my father, Josh McDowell, has been around a long time, a long time. In fact, I told him recently, I said, hey, Dad, you're old. When God said, let there be lights, you flipped on the switch. And he laughed because he has a great sense of humor, and he hasn't even lost a step. But my father's story, and I know he's been here in the past, is my father uh, was growing up in a town in Michigan, really troubled background with uh, a man who worked in their farm, abused him for seven years, until my dad was old enough to slam against the wall, say, if you touch me again, I'll kill you. His dad, my grandfather, was a drunk completely growing up. And my dad's older sister committed suicide. Pretty painful, difficult childhood. Well, he was in college. He met some Christians that had joy about life. He's like, what's your deal? They said Jesus. So he set out to write a book refuting Christianity. Jesus was not God. The Bible's not true and didn't rise from the grave. Ended up being captivated by the evidence and the love of God. Wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Hugely influential. Well, about a year and a half ago, we updated it together, which was really neat to do that with my father. So I asked him, because he has a little different perspective than I have. I said, Dad, you were setting out to disprove Christianity like in the 50s. Ended up becoming a believer. And you studied this for over half a century. How does the evidence compare now to when you first started? And he goes, son, there's a tsunami of evidence for the Christian faith. Now, if you happen to know my father, he's never understated anything in his entire life. Everything is larger than life. But that metaphor stuck with me. That says for somebody who's been studying this for a while, the amount of archaeological evidence, textual evidence, manuscript evidence, and arguments coming forward for the Christian faith is more significant than it's arguably ever been. So we have nothing to be afraid of by the evidence, but like Jesus should invite people to love God with their hearts and to use their minds. That's why Peter said, always be ready with an answer and give it with gentleness and give it with respect. So let's look at this evidence that many consider so compelling for the resurrection. But before we jump in, two issues we kind of have to address as we talk about this. Number one, you realize, if Jesus rose from the grave... It answers three of the biggest questions about life that people have. This event in history itself would answer three of the biggest questions about life. Question number one, does God exist? Friends, if Jesus died and was buried and on the third day rose from the grave, this tells us there is a God. The God Jesus believed in humanly speaking, exists. So imagine we go walking outside uh, during the break, and uh, I walk out towards my Ford Fusion car, and I see a huge dent in the front. Now, was it Stephen? I'm picking up. Is that right? Stephen's out there, smart guy. We had a conversation before. And I walk out there, and I'm like, Stephen, there's a huge dent in my car. What happened? He goes, man, I saw the whole thing, McDowell, but I couldn't stop it. I said, what was it? He said, from the sky, 
floating down was a feather. It hit your Ford Fusion and you dented it. Now, we would never believe that. If it was a Chevy, we might, but never with a Ford. <laughs> of course, we wouldn't believe it with any car because an effect that's significant requires a sufficient cause, right? It's called cause and effect. Well, if 2,000 years ago, somebody predicts multiple times recorded in Mark 8, 9, and 10, I'm going to die, rise on the third day, he's put to death, buried, and the third day comes back, this cries out for a very powerful cause, namely a cause that has power over life and death. Friends, if Jesus rose from the grave, there is a God who exists. The natural world is not all this real. The second question is, we know which religion is true. If Jesus rose to the grave, of all the religious options out there, it's like God's stamp of approval, so to speak, on the message of Jesus Christ. So there was a movie in 2001, maybe you saw it, it's kind of one of those B movies that probably still plays at midnight on TNT or something. It was called The Body with Antonio Banderas. And Antonio Banderas plays a former Green Beret who becomes a Catholic priest. And in this movie, what happens is he's a recent convert to the faith, and they find a body in Jerusalem dating to the first century, and it has a pilot coin, a rich man's tomb, who was crucified, so they think they found the body of... Good, you guys are much sharper than the first session. (laughs) Had a teaching that when you ask a question in church, the answer almost always is... Got it. So they think they found the body of Jesus. And it's, it's a fictional story. The church goes into an uproar, and they call him in to investigate it. But as I was watching this, I thought, you know what? Isn't it interesting? You can make a movie that in which the body of the religious founder, it actually matters if they find it or not. It doesn't make any difference if you have the body of Muhammad or Moses or Krishna or any other religious figure. But the reason in this movie the church goes into an uproar is because if we found the body of Jesus, Christianity is false. But if the body of Jesus is gone and he resurrected, then Christianity distinctly is true. There are other religions like Islam and Mormonism that make some miracle claims. But it's only in Christianity that the entire truth of it is based upon a single, testable, historical event. If Jesus rose from the grave, Christianity's true. If he didn't, even Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, we are to be pitied and our faith is futile. So if Jesus rose from the grave, God exists, Christianity's true. Third, there's life after death. If Jesus rose from the grave, When your heart stops beating or your brain stops functioning, life continues after the grave. You think, well, how does the death of Jesus and the resurrection prove this? Well, there was a 1990 movie some of you saw called, I'm dating myself, aren't I? (laughs) Or I'm proving that I watched these weird movies on TNT at midnight (laughs) called Flatliners. How many of you honestly remember the movie Flatliners? Not the recent remake, but it had Oliver Platt, Kevin Bacon, Jack Bauer, you might know him as Kiefer Sutherland, and Julie Roberts, and they're medical students, and they start wanting to discover if there's, to discover if there's life after death. 
So instead of studying philosophy or religion, what do they do? They flatline one another's hearts and then resuscitate themselves back to life and ask them, what was it like when you were dead on the other side? Now, obviously, this is a kind of experiment not to try at home. (laughs) But the thinking actually makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to know what life is like on the other side, talk to someone who's died, who's been there, and come back. Well, in the movie, they flatline their hearts for 15 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes. Well, Jesus didn't die for 30 seconds or two minutes or four minutes. He was dead and rose on the third day. And in his final sermon in the upper room, in the chapters of John, kind of like 14 to 17, Jesus says to his apostles, I am going to prepare a place for you. Friends, if Jesus rose from the grave, God is real. Christianity is true. And there is life after death. This event in history changes everything. Now, the moment we start to talk about whether Jesus rose or not, there's a lingering objection in people's minds where they won't even consider the evidence. You know what it is? It's the worldview. It's the worldview. So I mentioned that I teach at Bible University, and I teach high school part-time at a Christian school in San Juan Capistrano. Excuse me. Well, for years I got tired of seeing my students graduate, go in the military, go in the university, go in the real world, and just kind of abandon and leave their faith. So I got together with a friend of mine, Brett Kunkel, with a ministry called Maven. I said, we got to take our students to the most godless, secular place we can think of and bring in atheists, agnostics, let them speak to our students, and train our students how to defend their faith. So a number of years ago, we started taking our students on mission trips to Berkeley, It was my friend Brett's idea. He came up with a start running these trips. We partnered with him. And uh, when we were there, we brought in atheist agnostics. And it turns out I was coming two weeks later. So two of these atheist students that we had met with said, hey, when you're back, can we just get coffee and talk? I was like, sure. So we go and we sit. If you know where Sproul Plaza is, kind of the downtown Berkeley area, there's a famous kind of area called Sproul Plaza. And we're sitting kind of on the grass and one student says to me, turns out he was a PhD physics student at Berkeley at this time. He goes, look, you believe Jesus rose from the grave, right? I said, yes. He goes, doesn't science show that people, when they're dead, stay dead? In other words, science shows that dead people don't come back. If I'm going to believe in your story, I have to give up science. You see how that's a trade-off that's too much for many people. I said, well, look, here's the deal. Science is a descriptive notion that describes how the world operates naturally. I said, you're right. When people die, naturally they stay dead. The resurrection is not a claim that Jesus rose naturally. It's a claim that he rose supernaturally. If there is a God who spoke the world into existence and set up the laws of nature, why couldn't a God superintend the natural process and raise somebody from the dead? If there is a God, then a resurrection is possible. So to show that a resurrection is not possible, you have to prove to me God doesn't exist. Can you prove to me there is no God? And of course, nobody can do such a thing. 
See, most of the objections people have to the resurrection is not that they say, I don't buy the argument for the empty tomb, or I don't really believe that people thought they had appearances of Jesus. The main objections are, well, believing a resurrection requires a miracle, and science really shows us that miracles don't happen. That's really the main objection that many people have today. So I was speaking up, I'd love to hear that all the camps that your students are going to this summer. I love it. I'm, so my family and I, we often, I get a chance to speak up at Hume Lake, which is in the Sequoia National Forest. And I learned that the tallest trees are the redwoods, but the biggest trees by volume are sequoias. And what many people believe is the biggest tree that's ever lived is called the General Noble Tree. Now this tree was probably beginning to sprout about 3,200 years ago, like roughly the time of King David. Think about that. Well, some explorers in 1800 came, saw this tree, went back to the Midwest and told people about it. And they're like, there can't be a tree that big. It's not possible. Well, so in 1897, some explorers came, cut down this general noble tree, believed to be the biggest tree ever. Now it's just a stump. And they brought the different pieces of like a part of it, kind of like cutting a pie, brought it to the Chicago World Fair and set it up to show people how big this tree was. And still many people wouldn't believe. Google it. You know what it's called? The Great California Hoax. Empirical evidence, eyewitness testimony. Still wouldn't believe it. Why? Because their worldview was that trees cannot be that big. That's how they assumed the world works. So when presented with other evidence, rather than changing their worldview, they dismiss the other evidence. Do you see how this applies to the resurrection? If you assume that there's no God and miracles don't happen, it doesn't matter how strong of a case I make. You're going to dismiss it. But it sure seems to me the reasonable person would say, let's look at the evidence Let's see how it applies to this person, Jesus. And if a resurrection happened, then I'm at least open to falling where the evidence leads. So let's do that. We're going to look at four simple facts. In fact, we actually might even just make it three simple facts. Since Jesus rose on the third day, we'll keep it to three. And every preacher is supposed to have three points anyways, right? Four, you get fired. So we'll make it three simple facts that historians agree upon tied to the life and death of Jesus. So the question amongst most historians is not are these facts true, but what interpretation best accounts for these facts? Okay, so here's the first one, that Jesus died by crucifixion. Number one fact we know with a high degree of confidence is that Jesus died by crucifixion. You say, well, how do we know such a thing? Number one, very interesting, is we can just look at the nature of crucifixion and some of the medical evidence and see that it's almost virtually impossible Jesus could have survived this. So what do we know about crucifixion? Well, we know that actually the Romans did not invent it, but for lack of a better term, they perfected crucifixion. It, right, I don't know, maybe you can give me a better term than perfected, but you... You meant what I knew, right? The rest of you will get that at midnight. <laughs> they made it more effective at torturing and humiliating somebody. This is, in fact, what crucifixion was designed to be. 
to cause maximal pain, maximal humiliation in a public place so people would know not to question or challenge the Roman Empire. But crucifixion was so painful, they actually had to invent a new word for it. Excruciating in Latin means out of the cross. So next time you stub your toe, use a different word. So Jesus was whipped at least 39 times, which was enough, according to the records, to kill many people, equivalent to third and fourth degree burns over the entire body. He had the robe put around him, wait for the blood to coagulate and then tear it off. Crown of thorns on his head, and there's actually a thorn called the Christ thorn that's a long thorn found in, the, in Israel, just hammered into his head. Carries the cross up, nailed to the cross by his hands and by his feet. Now, at this point, when somebody's nailed across, they lift the cross, drop it in, and the body would just jar and would lose control of itself. People would throw up. They would sweat. They'd go to the bathroom all over themselves because it was the maximal pain you could put a human being through. What's amazing to me at this moment, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Man, when I just miss a meal, I get cranky and need a Snickers. Like at the point of maximal pain, Jesus is like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now on the cross, you don't die of blood loss. You actually die of asphyxiation. You'd be nailed to the cross, and people were stripped completely bare. Sun is pouring down, birds are pecking at them, and you'd have to push yourself up to inhale and exhale and go back down. Sometimes people for days. So to speed up death, they would come and shatter the shins which we see happening to the two people next to Jesus because it says Jesus was already dead. And then you'd hang there, slowly you'd run out of air, and you'd asphyxiate. Now it describes that a spear was thrust into the side of Jesus, and out came what? Blood and water. Now if you read some of the early church fathers, they think this is some kind of metaphor, like it's you know the blood and water of baptism, like they don't understand it. What's interesting, though, is in 1986, an article in the Journal for the American Medical Association, a historian and a theologian and a doctor wrote it, peer-reviewed, studying how somebody would medically die by crucifixion. And they said, around the heart is this area called a pericardial sac, which a watery-type substance at the point of death begins to surround and fill up around the heart. So if you're hit by a spear in that side of the body, guess what would come out? Blood and water a sign of death. Now, John doesn't know this. Luke was a doctor. He's just reporting what he saw. Friends, Jesus was dead. He was dead on the cross. Medically, we know this. Not to mention, we have multiple attestation, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have 1 Corinthians. We have the early church fathers. And we even have Tacitus, a Roman, early 2nd century. Josephus, a Jew, end of the 1st century, referencing the death of Jesus. Now, what's interesting enough is if you go to the 19th century, there were these scholars who tried to explain away the resurrection by saying things like the women went to the wrong tomb, or Jesus didn't really die on the cross, or it was a legend. Well, this guy named uh, David Strauss argued that the whole story is a legend. But he said the idea that Jesus survived the cross is crazy. He said, can you imagine Jesus being whipped, 
being put on the cross, crucified, somehow survives, put into between 75 and 125 pounds of spices around him, put in a tomb which somehow magically revives him, rolls the stone away, beats up the guards, walks to his disciples and says, hey, I've been resurrected. If you believe in me, you can have a resurrection body like mine. What are they going to say? Get this man a doctor. I definitely do not want to follow this man if this is what it means to be resurrected. Friends, Jesus was dead. We know it medically. We know it when we think about all the other sources that are out there, Christian, in the Bible, outside of the Bible, Jewish and Roman. Jesus was dead on the cross. By the way, here's the interesting fact. To die on the cross was to be die a shameful death. If this wasn't true, why would the apostles invent such a shameful death for their so-called Messiah? Makes no sense to invent it. All the record shows he was dead. Now, second, what do we know? Is that the tomb was found empty on the third day. The tomb, in fact, was found empty on the third day. Now, how do we know the tomb is empty? Gary Habermas has probably spent more time in his life studying the resurrection historically than anybody alive. He's a professor at Liberty, written a dozen or so books on this. In fact, since 1975, he's read 3,000 sources in three different languages on the resurrection and chronicled all the findings and the arguments. He's found 23 arguments for the empty tomb. Don't worry, we won't look at all of them. We're just going to look at 22. No, I'm just kidding. We won't. Just look at three of the more compelling, interesting arguments that the tomb was found empty. One of them was, you tell me, who discovered the empty tomb? In all gospel accounts, who discovered it? And don't say Jesus. <laughs> who discovered the empty tomb? The women did. Now, you've read this a bunch, but has it ever struck you how significant that fact is? So, historians have something called the criterion of embarrassment. That if you're looking at an ancient source and the writer reports material that's embarrassing or disparaging to his or her own character, then the historian says that information is probably true, or at least the writer thinks it's true, because we don't invent material to intentionally make ourselves look bad. That's not human nature. So, for example, kind of a silly example, but my sister, who's 10 years younger than I am, uh, some years ago, just happened to leave her computer open to her Facebook page. And I felt obliged to tell the world through her Facebook page how wonderful and amazing her older brother is. <laughs> I don't remember. I just something effective like, I'm just pausing, reflecting on how my older brother's changed my life. He's so wonderful. He's always there for me. I mean, I'm like pouring it on. And the comments are like, that's so sweet. I wish I had a brother like that. This moved me to tears. Like the comments were way over the top. So of course my sister gets on there later and figures it out. She doesn't stop and go, oh, yep. My sister faked that how much I love my brother. No. She knows there's one person who made this up, right? My mom. No, that's not true. My mom wouldn't do that. It was me. I mean, think about it. What's human nature? When we make stuff up, it's either to get out of trouble or to make ourselves look good, right? None of you wake up in the morning and go, you know what? I wonder what I can post on Instagram so the whole world just thinks I'm a loser. 
Yet that's just kind of not human nature. Well, when historians look at an ancient book and a writer includes information that's disparaging to the character of the writer, the historian goes, wow, this isn't invented. The writer cares more about truth than his or her own reputation. Well, if you look in the Gospels, the men are confused. They flee. And consistently, even though the Gospels differ over exactly how many or which women were there, they don't contradict. They just differ who they highlight. They consistently mention women. This is a patriarchal culture in which a woman's testimony was not considered as significant as a man's. I made a mistake one time. I said it was that patriarchal culture, a woman's testimony was not as significant as a man. I forgot to say considered as significant as a man, right? My wife was like, you left out a very important point. I said, you're right. Forgive me. I'll make the correction next time. Think about it. If they're making up a religion and it's based upon Jesus dying, a tomb being empty and appearing to people, and they're trying to convince people that it's true, who are the least likely witnesses they would invent to help their cause? It's women. It would make no sense. So why do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record women? It's because they believed that's exactly what happened. They were willing to write the women as witnesses, even though this would be embarrassing to them, because they care about sharing the truth of the story. Friends, women found the tomb empty on that third day. Now, a second argument who can tell me what's the first naturalistic explanation to counter from the religious leaders that resurrection happened? What do they say? That what? The disciples stole the body. Now stop and think about this. If the first explanation is disciples stole the body, what does this concede about the status of the body and the empty tomb? The tomb is empty. And the body's gone. Now, we'll come back to asking the question, is it reasonable to believe the disciples stole the body? But you notice what they're saying? They say the disciples stole the body, which means the tomb was empty and the body's gone. So the very first explanation recorded in Matthew, and then the second century, Justin Martyr reports it as well, is the disciples stole the body, which is a backhanded way of saying, yes, the tomb is empty and the body is gone. So number one, it's discovered by women. Number two, the first naturalistic explanation assumes the body is gone. But number three, think about this. If Jesus was not crucified, buried, an empty tomb, if this story didn't happen and the apostles are making it up, where would be the hardest city in the world to propagate a lie when we know the very name of the person who buried Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea? What city would that be in? It'd be Jerusalem. Why? Because that's the city in which Jesus was publicly crucified and he was buried. If it didn't happen, all they had to do is say, oh, wait a minute, we know Joseph Arimathea. We know where the rich man's tomb is. Go there and uncover and pull out the body and Christianity would have been done before it even started. But they can't. In fact, if you read the speeches in Acts, very interesting. In Acts chapter 2, the first speech at Pentecost, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus has ascended and the church begins. Have you read carefully what Peter says? He talks about Jesus, this Messiah who's crucified, rose again. 
And Peter says to his audience, and you yourselves know these things are true. You know what that means? They're publicly proclaiming in terms of weeks when these events happened. And they're appealing to the knowledge of the audience and say, you know what, you actually know this is true. You can investigate yourself. You can't disprove it, therefore believe. Friends, we have good reason to believe the tomb was empty. It's discovered by women. The first naturalistic account says the body was stolen, which means it's gone. And third, they go right back to Jerusalem. They don't go to Canada. They don't go to Australia. They don't go somewhere else in the Middle East or to Africa. They go right to the very city and proclaim a dead and crucified Messiah in a way that the people could have known and checked out, but they can't refute it. Friends, the tomb of Jesus was empty. So we know Jesus died. We know the tomb is empty. What's the third simple fact? Jesus appeared to people. Jesus appeared to people. So I'm actually starting a three-day class tomorrow at Biola. I teach in this apologetics program. And I teach a class on the resurrection. And I teach three days, 8 to 4.30, walking, actually 8.30 to 4, walking through all the evidence we're just kind of highlighting this morning. And one of the points I try to do with my students is help them have perspective about how this discussion has changed over time. How does the evidence compare now versus in the past? Well, there's a scholar I mentioned by the name of Gary Habermas, and he did his dissertation on the resurrection at Michigan State in 1975. He said at that stage, if you believed in the resurrection, either you were an evangelical or a Roman Catholic. He goes, now there's droves of scholars who accept basic facts surrounding the life of Jesus. In fact, I'm going to state this very carefully. The vast majority of New Testament scholars and historians on the historical Jesus believe that the apostles had experiences that they believed were of the risen Jesus. Let me state it again to make sure this sinks in. The vast majority of the scholars will concede that the apostles believed they had experiences that were of the risen Jesus. So any adequate explanation for the facts surrounding the resurrection has to account for where this belief came from. Now, why should you and I believe that the apostles actually had appearances of Jesus? Well, one, one of my favorite pieces of evidence is in a book called First Corinthians. Not one Corinthians is a famous politician said who will remain unnamed. First Corinthians. And in chapter 15, Paul writes a letter where he focuses on the resurrection. Verses 3 through 5 starts and Paul says this. He says, I pass on to you. And by the way, who is you? It's the church in Corinth. I pass on to you what was passed on to me of first importance. That Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose and appeared to people according to the scriptures. Now Philippians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. Did you listen carefully? Paul says, I pass on to you what I received. Paul has given a short creedal statement that was given to him. He's now passing it on to the church in Corinth. So this raises an interesting question. If Paul is writing 1 Corinthians in the mid-50s, and he's passing on them a creedal statement that was given to him, what question do we want to know? 
when was this creedal statement given to Paul? Do you understand the question? Now, we know Paul visited the apostles three years after his conversion in Jerusalem, and then 14 years later. I think a very strong case can be made that this creed in 1 Corinthians 15 was given to Paul within three years of the death and resurrection of Jesus and his personal conversion. Do you know what this means? That we have an early synopsis of what Christians believe. Jesus died, was buried, and appeared to people probably within the very decade that Jesus existed. Mentioned Jesus appeared to Peter, appeared to James, appeared to the apostles, and appeared to the 500. Do you realize historically how early this is? The earliest biography we have for Alexander the Great is over three centuries removed. We have a creedal statement of Jesus probably from within the decade in which he died. Friends, the appearances are early. So we have the appearances to women, the appearances to the 12, etc. But I had a skeptic say to me one time, he goes, look, why didn't Jesus show up to Pilate and go, boo, ha-ha, I'm back. I told you I was more powerful than you. I said, okay, so just so I understand, you think you know better than Jesus about spreading this message because it strikes me as a little odd. You might not think Jesus is the Son of God, but more people consider themselves followers of Jesus than anybody who's ever lived. Maybe, just maybe, he knew what he was doing. I mean, could you grant that to him? But Jesus did appear to skeptics, didn't he? In fact, which skeptics did he appear to? He appeared to Thomas. By the way, Thomas was not a doubter. We need to stop calling him doubting Thomas. Because you can doubt something while you believe it. Thomas didn't doubt. He said, I flat out won't believe. That's not doubt. That's rejection. But he did appear to Thomas to show the nail marks in his hand and in his feet. What other skeptics did he appear to? Paul, good. Formerly known as Saul, out persecuting Christians, Jesus appears to him and totally turns his life upside down. Now, what's amazing to me is the vast majority of scholars will concede that Paul had an experience that he believed was of the risen Jesus. Now, stop and think about this. If Paul didn't see the risen Jesus, then you have to come up with some other explanation of what causes this persecutor to completely shift his worldview and be willing to give his life to proclaim the message about Jesus. So a book my father wrote that I helped him update years ago called More Than a Carpenter, we include a story where there was a debate in a fraternity. And I won't, I won't give the specifics. You can go read it up if you want to. But basically, there's a Christian apologist, and he was debating a professor who was known for being very antagonistic against the faith. You students, when you get to college, you might have one or two professors very antagonistic against the faith, but many will just dismiss your faith. And you got to think through, how am I going to respond when people see the world differently? Well, this professor was the one who would call out Christians because he thought it was dumb and dangerous and idiotic. So they're having a debate, and the Christian apologist says, look, Paul had an experience of Jesus, transformed his life. And the skeptics explain away, he says, look, here's what happens. I have a better explanation. Sometimes you can be so against a movement... So against movement, you hate it so much that you end up having a psychological shift and you embrace that movement. And Paul just goes, he says, sir, you better be careful. You're about to become a Christian. <laughs> Friends, if Paul didn't see the risen Jesus, you've got to come up with something else to explain it. You know what other skeptic we had? Is James, the brother of Jesus. 
during his lifetime, the brothers of Jesus don't believe in him. Just read Mark 3 and John 7. They don't believe in him. And yet James becomes the head of the early church. And in AD 62, Josephus reports that he was killed, stoned to death, tied to his faith and proclamation. Friends, we have this radical shift in people who think Jesus is dead, not the one they were expecting, and all of a sudden you have these people willing to suffer and die for their belief that Jesus personally appeared to them. The facts are there. Jesus died by crucifixion. He was buried. The tomb was empty. And you have all these people, including groups and individuals and skeptics, saying, I saw Jesus, he changed my life. Now, there's a ton of naturalistic explanations people will try to account for these facts. For example, people say the apostles stole the body. Friends, this makes zero sense to me. First off, how did they get by the guard? They're a bunch of fishermen. But second, if the apostles stole the body, that means they knew the story of Jesus was false. They intentionally preach a lie and are willing to suffer and die for something they knew was false wouldn't at least one of them have come forward and said, all right, spare my life, I know this is not true. But they're all willing to suffer and die for this claim. There's no reason to think the apostles could have stolen the body, let alone would have stolen the body even if they could. Perhaps the biggest naturalistic explanation on academic level is hallucinations. That the apostles didn't really see Jesus, but they hallucinated that they had seen Jesus. Now, there's a range of problems with this, but one of the biggest problems of this explanation is that you cannot have a group hallucination. <laughs> Hallucinations do not appear to groups. You can no more share a hallucination with somebody than you can share a dream. Sorry to fans of Inception. Now, look. Can you imagine if you could share a dream with someone? You know how much money I could save? Honey, I just dream we're in Maui. Go to sleep and join me. We don't even need to go there. Let's just dream we're on the beach and we're snorkeling. Well, of course not. There's no good scientific evidence for group hallucinations. Yet when we look at the Gospels, what do we consistently have? Jesus appearing to groups. Friends, here's the reality. There is convincing evidence Jesus lived. He died, buried in a tomb. That tomb was empty and appeared to people. There is no explanation apart from the resurrection that can account smoothly for all those facts. So why don't people believe? I think because Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow after me. There's a cost of following Jesus. He says, honor God with your body. You are bought with a price. Turn from your sin. Lay down your wants for this world and love God and love other people. Friends, following Jesus comes at a cost. You know what amazes me about the resurrection, though? I think as you look at arguably the biggest movie of all time, Infinity War and Endgame, you have the gospel written all over it. Have you noticed that? So think about it. The Infinity War movie came out a year plus ago. What's the, how many of you have seen Infinity War? I'm not going to feel bad if I ruin it. You've had plenty of time. Arguably, 
the most epic film ever in terms of, of course, followed up by Endgame, this Avengers kind of movie. The most actors, most money, 10 years in the making. You know what the theme of Infinity War is? To what is the value of a human life? What would you sacrifice a human life for? So the movie begins with Loki deciding if he's going to sacrifice his brother Thor to prevent Thanos from getting one of the stones. Then the movie moves forward, and Star-Lord has a decision if he's going to sacrifice Gamora to prevent Thanos from getting another Infinity Stone. And then Doctor Strange, I'm sorry if you haven't seen the movie, you're like, what on earth is he talking about? (laughs) Bear with me. Doctor Strange has the decision, is he going to sacrifice Iron Man? And then Scarlet Witch has the decision, is she going to sacrifice Vision? The whole movie is, to what can you sacrifice a human life? And what does Captain America say? He says, we are not in the business of exchanging lives until exchanging a life is all that can be done to protect the innocent. Now, there's a scene in that movie where Star-Lord, who loves Gamora, Star-Lord is played by Chris Pratt, who my 12-year-old thinks is totally cute. (laughs) By the way, I'm like, you realize Infinity War, Chris Pratt's character almost ruined the movie. And she goes... Actually, he saved it. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have part two. I'm like, that's what I get for reasoning with a 12-year-old who has a crush. (laughs) There's one point where Chris Pratt's character, Star-Lord, discovers what Thanos had done to his lover, Gamora. He had sacrificed her. What does he say? He says, this is not real love. You students who watch this, did you see that the gospel is written all over this movie? Thanos the bad guy is like, I'm going to sacrifice half the universe, save myself, but I'm going to sacrifice other people. The Avengers are like, we are willing to lay down our lives if that's what it takes to save the universe. What's amazing is, you know what Jesus said in John 15, 13? He said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. When I saw that movie, I was like, oh my goodness, the most money, probably the most epic film they're trying to tell, and they can't get away from the idea that real love is sacrificing what you have for another. Friends, C.S. Lewis said, we see these mythical stories of dying and sacrifice and this broad sense of resurrection in the literature throughout the history of the world. It's as if God has placed it on our hearts that this is the greatest story pointing towards when this would really happen with Jesus. That's the power of the resurrection. It's written on our hearts. Now, I don't think the producers of these movies did it intentionally. I think they're made in the image of God and they live in God's world. And they can't escape pointing towards the greatest story of sacrifice and love ever told, which is God taking on human flesh, willingly dying at the hands of those he has created to save them from sin. Infinity War is a beautiful story and so is Endgame, but it's fiction. The Christian story is true. And its truth changes everything. Amen? It changes how we face death. It changes how we grieve. It's how we know that we're forgiven. And it enables us to live in the power of the resurrection that Paul talks about.
Friends, the evidence is there for those with eyes to see and for ears to hear. God has revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, obviously, I could keep going because I'm about to teach three days on this. And let me highlight that so you know we've just scratched the surface. And as Christians, it's important that we take the time to learn what we believe and why we believe it so you can be ready with an answer for a skeptical world that asks. If, uh, if you're one of those people that wants to go a little bit deeper, the book, My Dad and I Update, Evidence Demands a Verdict, is in the back. I think I mentioned my dad first wrote this. In the, well, he wrote it in the 1970s. His quest began in the 50s, trying to disprove Christianity but being amazed by the evidence. Wrote it, and then when we updated about a year and a half ago, I asked him, how does the evidence compare now? And he said, there's a tsunami of evidence, which to me is just encouraging. That if we're willing to research it and look for it, the evidence is there that Christianity is really true. There's compelling evidence for it. So that's back there if that's helpful for you. And then a practical one I just wrote with a friend called So the Next Generation Will Know. It came out last month, and it's a practical guide for any caring adult, for a teacher, for a parent, grandparent, uncle, coach, pastor, who says, I want some practical tools how to pass on faith to the next generation. If you're looking at this young generation, Gen Z, saying, what can I do to help them embrace the faith that was passed on to me? This is like how we know that it's true. This is like how do we actually live it out with this next generation? And I'm thrilled to see many of you going on this trip. That is fantastic. Good for you. I'm going to sneak to the back. Would love to say hi. Shake your hand. Sign a book if that's helpful. But most importantly, thanks for having me here this morning. And I hope you'll stay in the third session. We're talking about the problem of evil, which really is the heart of the objection I'm convinced most people have against God. God bless you guys.